Uh, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this beautiful day you've given us. The blue skies, the sunshine. We look out in your creation and we thank you. You're a wonderful, wonderful maker. Lord, I pray as we get into your word, may your Holy Spirit move and speak to our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, may we be able to just sit at your feet and hear you, Lord God. Remind us of your goodness, your love for us, Lord. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been looking at our new study, and we've been in Genesis 1. And uh, last week, I started off with some little fun facts about nature and stuff. So I have a little bit more fun facts for you, and we're going to focus a little bit more on the human body, okay? So a little fun facts about the human body. I don't know how many of you, probably most of you know that the human femur, you know what the femur is, which bone that is, right? The bone in your leg is stronger than concrete. How many of you knew that? Okay, I thought that was more common. I guess it's not. The human femur is stronger than concrete. You can get one cubic inch of the bone and has four times the strength of the same size unit of concrete. All right. Here's another thing. A quarter of our bones in a human body are in where? What do you think? In the feet. A quarter of the bones in the human body are in the feet. Now, this is genius, right? The strongest bone in your body is your legs because that's helpful, right? It's the foundation for you so that you can bear weight. And it's interesting that all the bones in your feet, so many bones in your feet are in, or bones are in your feet, but isn't it genius because it, the way it is, it allows us to move, right? They're small bones, but all together, together allows us to move like that. Can you imagine if it was just one bone? You kind of be walking like penguins. While your height stops growing after puberty, your ears and your nose continue to lengthen due to gravity. Now this, when I read this, this totally justifies my paranoia when I was going through puberty. Because when I was a teenager, I can't tell you how long, it's kind of embarrassing to tell you, how long I looked in the mirror and said, oh man, is my nose growing? <laughs> oh man, this is my, I think my ears are getting bigger, you know? And I thought I was just being paranoid. Now I see that that could possibly have been true. That might be good news or bad news for some of you, I don't know. I saw my, 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 no, I don't want to speak badly to my, my dad, but okay, he's not around here. I can say this. So my, my dad's nose, I saw my, the size of my dad's nose at the time. I'm like, oh, no, I don't want my dad's nose. Okay, anyways. In the average human lifetime, you will grow around 600 miles worth of hair. I don't know how someone gets to that conclusion. But the human brain, here's interesting, the human brain can survive up to three to six minutes after being cut off of oxygen. Interesting, three to six minutes, right? Thank God, right, that that can happen. The tongue is covered in about 8,000 taste buds containing up to 100 cells helping us be able to taste food. 8,000 taste buds. It's kind of interesting. I think I burn, like, I think I destroy like 100 of them every time I drink like Starbucks coffee. 
You know, I don't know if you're like that. Every time I drink a Starbucks, I will blow. Now, that probably doesn't go well in the mic, huh? But, and then I will take a sip at every single time I burn my tongue, right? I don't know what Starbucks does, but that's why I don't want to go there anymore. All right, we produce about 40,000 liters of spit in our lifetime. That's enough to fill around 500 bathtubs. That's a little gross. I think I, sp- I, think I filled one bathtub just alone in my, as, a, as a baby, right? I look at when I was a baby, man, I was like a drooly mess, you know, so I don't know. Here's an interesting, DNA is fireproof. If you lace cotton, like if you can imagine, you lace cotton with concentrated genetic material, the DNA is a flame retardant. That's pretty interesting. You're about one centimeter taller in the morning when you first get up than you do when, you're, when you go to bed. How many of you knew that one? <laughs> this is because during the day, the soft cartilage between the bones gets squashed and compressed. How many of you have started shrinking? No, don't answer that. I don't want to embarrass you. Laid end-to-end, an adult's blood vessels could circle the Earth's equator four times. Interesting. Here's a, I think, very fascinating one, and I'll end with this. And that's the end of the sermon. No. Our brain rewrites the memories each time. This is what they think. This is what they believe. Our brain rewrites the memories each time we think of it slowly altering it or twisting it over time. So childhood memories may have actually been distorted by our brains over many years. It's kind of interesting, right? We never think of that. But that's what they, that's what they believe, that as the more as you re, rethink of remember memories, that it gets slightly altered as you go. That's quite interesting. But you, you read all these things, and I can go on for, for hours, right? You can read all this. It's amazing, right? You look at how complex our universe is, how complex life is, right? But in reality, the body, the human body, truly is a miracle. How our body is composed, how it's made. And truly, I, I really believe that it takes more faith to believe that all of this exists out of unintelligent, random chaos than it would take to believe that all this occurred because we have an intelligent designer. I really believe that. I think it takes more faith to believe that God doesn't exist than to look all around and see how intricate life is and realize there must be an intelligent designer. Today we're going to focus on the sixth day of creation. We saw last week how the first three days God created the environment, right? that would allow life to thrive. So by day four, he filled the space, right? He filled the the, the luminaries, the sun and moon and the stars. And the fifth day, he filled the seas with marine life and the airs with flying creatures. So he set the stage and he filled the space. It's like as if you built a house, you built the framework, you built the individual rooms, and then you started to decorate the rooms, right? Today we're going to focus on the sixth day of creation. And it's interesting how it's given the most attention out of all the days of creation. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 24. 
It says, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God, said, uh, God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day." So here we see that God makes all the beasts of the earth, right? The cattle, everything that creeps on the ground, including man and woman. And before we go any further looking at it, remember I said last week, the central message of Genesis 1 is not the creation itself. God is the central message. He is at the center of Genesis 1. It's not creation is God himself. So what does the passage tell us about God? And we saw last week these four things that this passage tells us about God. God is the sole creator. He is the designer. And that how God creates with purpose and intention. And we see how God is master over creation. And that God is provider for his creation. So we see all these characteristics, these qualities of God and how he created. And we see that God, he is an active God, right? He creates, he makes, he fashions. He speaks and he declares. He separates and he gathers together. We see that he names, he gives name, he sees, he assigns purpose, he assigned purpose for the stars and the sun and the moon. And we also see that he blesses his creation. So God is intentional, purposeful, and intricate in his design and his creation. We see these things, right? But there's something more we learn about God in this Genesis account. This Genesis account alludes to something intriguing about God. And we wouldn't realize this mystery if we just read it in English. It may not be as apparent to us in English. But in Hebrew, the Hebrew word used for God here is in the plural form for God. Elohim, which is the plural form Eloah, okay? Now, unless you refer to yourself in the third person... You normally don't refer to yourself in the plural form, right? All right, basics of, of language, there's plural form and singular form. Like if you have a conversation with somebody and someone asks you, hey, 
what'd you do today? And you say, oh, we had lunch. Okay, what's the next question they might ask? They might ask you, oh, who did you have lunch with? And you say, oh, no one, just myself. What would their expression be? They'll look at you a little confused. Wait a second, wait, wait. Didn't you just say, we? Wait, you, I thought you said we. It's like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, we. Me and the voices in my head. No, I don't know what it would be, right? Right, unless you refer to yourself as a third person. If you're that person who tends to tend to refer to yourself as a third person, you tend to use I, myself, because you're a singular person. But in Hebrew, it uses a plural form of God. But if you look at verse 26, also there's interesting, right? In all the previous works of creation, right, we saw that God declares, let there be, and it happens, right? Let there be light, let there be such and such, and it happens. But look what verse 26 says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And God created man in his own image image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them this time and only this time in the creation account we see that God declares something but he says let us make man in our image according to our likeness it's like there's a there's a glimpse of a dialogue that God is having he's not like looking at himself in the mirror and saying hey Let's, make, let's do something together, right? There's this plurality that's being, there's something or someone there, right? Who is God talking to? Who is God referring to when he says, let us make man in our image? Now, some speculate that he's referring to the angelic hosts. Some trying to understand, they're saying, well, he must be talking to the angels, but there's a problem with that interpretation, right? Nowhere do we see that angels have creative powers or abilities or authority. Nor do we ever see that angels represent the image of God or the likeness of God. That is not the portrayal we see in Scripture. So I don't think you can say that he's speaking to the angelic hosts because they don't have creative ability or power, let alone are they representing God's likeness or image, right? Some speculate he's just referring to himself, but he's using this kind of sense of plurality reformation of like, or reference of like, well, you know, he's using a plurality form, but he's really speaking to herself. And I don't know if that really flies. I, don't think, I think that's kind of grasping at straws, trying to understand this. Here's another added mystery in verse 2. It says, And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So before God begins his creative work on earth, we see this earth is dark, a watery wasteland. Right? It's, it's void, it's kind of empty, it's just this dark, watery wasteland. But we're told that the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now this is also interpreted differently. The word for spirit here could either be interpreted as spirit or wind. 
Maybe in your Bibles you have this reference, you have a little note that references wind, right? That word is used in both the ways of scriptures as spirit or wind. So some interpret it as it's the wind of God. Some interpret it as the spirit of God. And the fact that it's linked to with God, wind of God or spirit of God, personally, I see it as more accurate to interpret it as spirit of God. Because it's a sense that the Spirit is hovering over the waters. But here's the reason why I interpret it that way, not the wind of God. If someone interprets it the wind of God, I don't think it's a big consequence, right? It's not heresy or anything. But here's the reason why I prefer the interpretation of the Spirit of God. If you look at ancient mythologies, there's a lot of commonalities. And there's a lot of mythologies when you took about, look at the, the start of creation there's a common kind of reference point, this, this, this reference to like these this, um, primordial chaotic waters. And that life and with wind, there's an element of wind in it. And, and together, life came out of these chaotic waters and this wind. And you, different various mythologies have some kind of alterations of this kind of uh, original source. Now, a lot of people can look at that and look at the Hebrew Scripture and say, well, they were just borrowing from mythologies. But to me, whenever you have like common traits, right, commonalities, if you have a whole bunch of stories, and if I was to ask individual, each person something about last Sunday, and you all might have various stories, but there's some common element to your story, what does that tell you? It tells you that there's some kind of points to some certain truth, and there might have been some alterations to that truth, right? I believe that the Hebrew Scriptures has it right. That was the truth of it. And all the mythologies are distortions of the truth, right? What makes you say that? Well, I see it as a correction rather than a copy, right? I see this as a declaration that the Spirit of God was present and part of the creative work. And for us as Christians, right, it would be easy for us to look at this and say, oh, there's evidence of the Trinity, right? Right? I think we've all kind of used that at some point in time as evidence of the Trinity. God speaking to us, we can say, oh, that's the, that's the, the, the Son and the Spirit with the Father creating. We see the Spirit in Genesis 2. When we look at it from a Christian perspective, we can see that, right? But I don't know if necessarily the author at the time, and I think it was Moses, but you know, some people have different opinions. I don't think the author and even the Hebrews at the time they received this, I don't know if they had a full thought out theological idea of the Trinity as we do, right? I don't, I don't think they had that full laid out idea of Trinity at the time. We don't see that throughout, like, the doctrine fully laid out for us as clearly as we do in the New Testament. But I think that's really kind of makes it more interesting of the, valid, the, the validity of this Genesis 1. Here's why I say that. Clearly, the Hebrew Scriptures and the God of the Hebrews, right, of the Jews, clearly is monotheistic, Right? I don't think anyone can dispute that. The God of the Bible, the religion, or the faith of the Jews at the time was monotheistic. 
They believed in one God. They made that clear. And if you remember, when God, if, if Moses is, you know, the author, at, at the very earliest, the author of Genesis through Deuteronomy, remember the context. God is leading his people out of where? Egypt. Egypt was a polytheistic culture and society. They had a God and idols assigned for all sorts of creation, sun, moon, waters, everything. And God is bringing them out of that culture. And when the Bible is written, it's clear, it's monotheistic. One God. And so it would make sense, or it wouldn't make sense, if all the scripture, who's, they're making it very clear, defiantly, and clear that the God of the scriptures, the God of the Hebrews, is monotheistic. There's only one God, right? All throughout scripture. It wouldn't make sense to me to picture, to start off from the very beginning, to portray the God of the Jews as possibly polytheistic, right? Multiple gods. It wouldn't make sense to start right off the bat to describe God as if there's multiple gods. And it wouldn't make sense to me that the writers of the scriptures would try to pull off of these other religions in order to portray as one God. So you kind of look at how Scripture is being portrayed. And as I mentioned last week, you look throughout Scripture, it's not from the perspective of people creating a a mythology. Because they had that already with the other nations. They had these man-made ideas of God and how they were created and how they were made. But the Bible is defiantly contrasting to the beliefs of the neighboring nations. It is not from the perspective of man creating their ideas of God. It's from the perspective of God speaking to his people. There's a big difference in how scripture is laid out. God speaks to his people. And he's saying from the very beginning, there's a plurality nature of God, but it's a single God. And he says, let us Make man in our image and in our likeness. So it's very interesting, this interesting dynamic. And it's a mystery. That's why there's all these different ideas of how do we, how do we interpret this from the Jewish perspective. And it's a mystery unless you understand, really, John 1. When you get to the gospel, you get to Christ and coming down. And when John writes his gospel, where does John start off? Right? The other gospel accounts, they start from Jesus' birth story. They start in his, the start of his, his ministry, right? We, as we saw in Mark. John, he doesn't start it off at his birth. He doesn't start off at the start of his ministry. Where does he start? Before the beginning. John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was there in the beginning with God. All things that were created, all that was made, was made by the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have, as Christians, we have the perspective of looking through all of Scripture and seeing, wow, the nature of God and how God communicated is is fully formed and fully made as we see throughout scripture and when we see christ 
Now we can look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, verse 26, and say, now we understand how God can be referenced as Elohim in the plural form, yet is one God. We'll get to more of that in a second. Some may say, can we prove Jesus is in Genesis 1? Well, you can't prove it. But all the scripture is not just in Genesis 1. And you hold all the scripture, it's like, ah, that makes sense. Now I understand how we can say these things. So God is creator. And he saves his greatest creative work for the sixth day. Now if you notice in the previous, up until this point, God created all the living creatures, what? After its kind, right? After its kind. But in verse 21, right, we see from the beginning, the sea creatures, the living creatures that move and swim were made after their kind. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, the cattle after their kind, everything that creeps on the ground after their kind. And God saw that it was good. It's almost like God anticipated, you know what, man's going to have all these speculations, (laughs) you know. They're going to speculate that all came out of one single kind of form and it all just adapted over time. And God's saying, no, 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 no. I made all these things after its kind. But God saved something special. He will give a unique quality for the best of his creation. When God created humans, man and woman, he created them distinct from all creation because God said let us make man in what according to what our image and our likeness God made man and woman in his image and his likeness not like the likeness of the primates or any other created thing that's significant remember of the Hebrew people they're coming out of Egypt where their gods have these mixed melding of animal and man formations right you go to egypt you see the gods they look like half animal half person god corrects them i created male and female in my image in my likeness and this is important this concept of image and likeness image refers to the visual representation right? There's a visual representation, and likeness refers to the similitude, right? You're like this person. You have these qualities of this person. If you paint a self-portrait, or paint a picture of somebody, or you mold a sculpture of somebody, the image is the visual representation of that person or thing, and the likeness, as you craft the likeness, you're presenting the likeness of your inspiration, whatever it may be, right? So this idea of image and likeness, and we see it's a very significant theme throughout Scripture, this theme of image and likeness. Man and woman were given the privilege of being visible representations of God for all creation. Let this sink in. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, the the magnitude, the depth of the significance of being created in God's image and likeness. But man and woman were to be the visual representation of God for all his creation. It's kind of deep. They weren't gods themselves. That's important to distinguish, right? They were not gods themselves, 
but bear the likeness of God. There's a distinct difference. How many other religions have this belief that you can be what? God's. Research it, right? How many different religions strive to reach the level of God? But God said, no, 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 no. I created you to be in the likeness and the image of me. But you are not God's, yourself. God intended people to be that image and that likeness and man, but then it's interesting, right, what happens in the story of Scripture. God intended you to bear the image and likeness of God, but what does man do? Man then creates images and likenesses of himself or of creation. They make idols, right? Remember what happened in, in, the, in the wilderness. We'll get to that, I don't know, maybe like in months from now. I don't know, maybe next year. We'll get to Exodus But what happens to the people of the Hebrews coming out of Egypt? When Moses goes up to the mountain, what do they do? Time passes, like, what do we do? Moses left us. Let's make an image of the the calf, the, the ox, and it will be like God to us, right? So God creates man in his image, his likeness. Man creates images out of their image and likeness out of creation, God establishes Israel to be his people, right? The the visible representation of God as they go into the promised land. They represent God to the people. But what does Israel do? They end up falling into idolatry. So what happens in the New Testament? Jesus what? Jesus comes to earth, and what does he do? He takes on human flesh to be the visible representation of, of God. Look at what 2 Corinthians 4 4 says. So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians 1 verse 13. For he, being Jesus, transferred to us to the kingdom of his beloved God, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. He is what? The image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. See, this time when Jesus comes, he comes and he's the image of the visible God, right? He's the visible representation of God. But he doesn't come in the likeness of God. What does John say in 1030? Jesus says to him, I and the Father are what? We're one. In other words, we are united. There's unity with me and the Father. John 14, 7, he goes to say, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Why? Because you've seen Christ. He doesn't just come in the likeness. He's not just like God. Jesus was the divine Son of God. But he came in the visible representation of God. So by the time you get to Jesus being the image of the invisible God, bearing unity with the Father, what happens to us? We who are in Christ, we become what? The visible representatives of who? Of Christ. 
Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become what? Conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Colossians 3, Paul says, but now you also put away all the anger, the wrath, the malice, the slander, abusive speech forming your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Put away all those things. But what? Put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to what? The image of the one who created him. You see this the significance pattern of image and likeness in Scripture. God creates man in his image, both man and woman in his image. But what ends up happening? Man creates his own images, his own idols to worship. God creates his own people for himself, right? But what does his people do? His people follow their own images, their own idolatry. So what does God finally do? Jesus comes in his own image. And God recreates man in what? In his image. Do you see the pattern of the story that's, that's threaded throughout Scripture? The power of likeness and image. The significance of how God created Man and woman to be in the image of God. To be the visible representation of him for creation. To have the likeness of God. We're not gods ourselves. Don't, get, don't mistake in that. But we bear the likeness of him. There's some quality. What's the depth of that? I don't know. Right? What's the depth of that? But there's qualities that God put in us, created us with. To represent him. Now, what do we have seen? That's, and we're going to explore what this all means in the next few weeks. But see, what we've seen throughout history, and we're going to see later on in a couple weeks, the enemy wants to destroy and distort our ideas and understanding of what it means to be created in the image of God. To bear the likeness of God. His strategy, there's twofold strategy I see in how he tries to attack our understanding of being created in the image of God. And the first strategy, let me see if I, there you go. The first strategy is to devalue humanity. If he can devalue humanity, but yet at the same time, overvalue humanity. Same strategy. He knows we are created in the image of God. But if I can get people to devalue what it means to be created in the image of God, but at the same time overvalue what it means to be created in the image of God, I got him. How does he do that? You think about devaluing humanity. You think about the deception of, of evolution, right? The theory of evolution is that you are a product of random millions upon millions upon millions of years of chance and consequence. If I can get you to diminish your value to be just no significant purpose that you're here other than random chance, then it knocks down your idea of purpose, of worth, of value. And what ends up happening is that you're self-governed by impulses, right? 
You're your own God, basically. But your life is only as valuable as society cares to want to perceive it. Your life is only as valuable as society cares to perceive it. If there is no original intent or purpose for your life or for humanity, then your value and worth as a person is only as however society wants to perceive it or care for it. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed the trends of how society likes to dictate what is valuable, what is worth, what is life, how valuable certain life is, at what stage of growth, humanity? If we can devalue what is in the womb of a woman, then it can get you question, what is in the image of God? If we can say we're just merely a product of evolution, then who cares what you do? Who holds you accountable? Right? If we can devalue humanity, but at the same time, overvalue humanity, how does Satan do that? He feeds our pride and our sense of ego, right? If we can just feed our ego to be like God and others control, dictate how we live our life, We see, God wanted us to be like him. But our sinful desires drive us to want to be him. Doesn't it? Right? If I can get you to say, you know what? You are control. You do whatever you want. Whatever your desires tells you to do, go for it. You do it. You're your own God. You're in control. You dictate what is valuable, what is worth, what you desire, what you should and shouldn't do. Who needs God? You see the strategy? See how the enemy attacks what it means to be created in the image of God? If I could devalue it at the same time, maybe overvalue it so that you control whatever you want. We have to realize this is the strategy. We have to realize this is happening in our society. In the next few weeks, we're going to cover the significance of what it means to be created in the image of God and how it plays out in a lot of different areas in our life. And we're going to get personal. We're going to cover some very personal, sensitive issues and topics. Because at the center of those topics is this understanding that you and I We're created in the image of God. And there's a responsibility given to us as being visible representatives of God. And we're going to cover some really tough topics. It can be tough for me, it may be tough for some of you, but we have to deal with it. Because there's an enemy out there, and I've said this many times, I've spoken to the youth and I've spoken to you parents But the enemy is out there to devalue you as a human, devalue you as a man, devalue you as a woman. At the same time, try to elevate you to think of yourself at the level of God. And we see that from the very beginning in the garden. Let me wrap up with this, closing thoughts. The intention of all of creation was to be a blessing for his people. All of creation was given to his people for enjoyment. God says, enjoy. All this is food for you. I want you to rule over all the animals and and so forth. 
All of creation reveals his majesty, but none more so than when he created man and woman. We were intentionally designed to be like him from the beginning, and God is going to see it through at the end. Let me say that again. We were intended and designed to be like him from the very beginning, and is going to see through it, see to it at the end. First John chapter three, verse two. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because he because we will see him just as he is. We're not going to be gods. We'll be like him. What that means, I have no idea. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what we're going to look like when we're, we receive our new bodies. I don't know what our eternal bodies going to look like. I don't know what age we're going to look like. I have an idea. I have a hope, right? I don't know what that's going to look like. But what God intended from the beginning will be fulfilled at the end. And I'll end with this note. 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Why do I end with that? The image of the invisible God, the eternal Son of God, came down. And as we saw in Mark, he came to take away the sins of the world. In him there is no sin. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. And I'm going to speak to those of you in here. You have wrestled with sin. Yes, I know we have all wrestled with sin. But if you have not asked the Lord to forgive you of your sin, or you weren't sure whether you could, know that there is forgiveness in Christ. No matter what you have done, God knows. And what he did on the cross was so that you do not have to bear the weight of your sin, that you can have forgiveness. I encourage you to just pray, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin to be my Savior and Lord. Forgiveness is a gift open for you. The image of the invisible God took on flesh. The eternal Son of God died on the cross and rose again for our sin, for our salvation, our redemption so that we may one day realize what it means to fully 
be created in his image and his likeness. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your love and your mercies. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.